0: Welcome to Oslo International Church's podcast where we share weekly reflections from our community of faith. If you'd like to explore more of our resources or join us for a service, visit our website at oslointernational.church. And now, here's the message from our last Sunday service with Pastor Mike on Stornagel. I love the book of Ruth. I love the book of Ruth. Yeah. The more I read it, the more I spend time with it, the more I go into it, the more I love it. And uh, if you've been in OIC for, for some years, and if you have good memory, <laughs> this, this might not be a surprise for you, because I actually have uh, preached about Ruth uh, a number of times before already. Yeah. But I don't expect you to remember what I said last time, so... Here we go again, and we're going to spend a whole month with Ruth from today until we start with the Advent. And this is the second part of our Ordinary Faith series, You have the slide up there. And we started this series back in September. We've been this year uh, following the liturgical calendar of the church a bit closer. Uh, It sort of was in the background for many years, and in OIC, we haven't laid that much focus to it outside of, you know, Christmas and Easter and the big ones. Uh, But this past year, we've been following it a bit more closely uh, and following the different seasons of the church in which we talk about Advent, we talk about uh, the Lent and Easter and all of those. And now we are in what is called the ordinary season, which is the longest Season in the church calendar, which goes uh, all the way from uh, after Easter and then all the way until Advent again. Uh, And we decided to play a bit with this name and, and talk about ordinary faith. Because it's interesting, right, that the biggest chunk of the church calendar and of the liturgical year is when nothing happens. None of the big things. It's just life. Ordinary life. Thanks, Isaac ordinary life, and uh, what does faith mean in that context? Thanks a lot. And we started this series back in September, and for the first part of, series, of the series, we, we spent six weeks with the letter of James. And if you want to know more about why we chose particularly these two pieces of biblical literature for a series uh, called Ordinary Faith, I'm not going to repeat all of it, but you can go and check out our podcast from the 10th of September, uh, and there I envision James and Ruth and Jane walking into a pub together, and I talk about why they're all sitting around the same table. So if you want to know what's the, why we're doing these, and why on earth are we going from James to Ruth and all of that, then that's where it is. But we're done with James now. We spent six weeks with him, and we get to spend time with the book of Ruth. Which, as I said, I, I love. But that wasn't always the case, though. That I love the book of Ruth. It's not that I disliked Ruth before. I just didn't, you know? It's a small, it's a, it's a four-chapter little book, squeezed between Judges and First Samuel, somewhere there in the Hebrew Scriptures. Right, what many of us call the Old Testament. And I, I just didn't really give it much credit, or pay much attention to it. And if I I guess if I'm honest I kind of underestimated it. But it has truly grown on me over the years mainly because I stopped to actually hear the story. To actually listen to the story. And here's what I realized this book this week. I realized that the book of Ruth it's kind of like a Pixar movie. <laughs> kind of like a Pixar movie. Do you, have you ever seen a Pixar movie? A Pixar is an animation studio. They're a bit bought by Disney now, but, uh, but they still do their thing. And they are very well known both for their short stories, but especially for their full-length animation uh, films, right? Toy Story was their big breakthrough. Toy Story, Finding Nemo, Ratatouille, Up. Coco, Wall-E, Elemental, like just to name a few. Uh, if you haven't seen any of these, you know, get a life, go see a Pixar movie. They're great. I think people at Pixar are amazing storytellers. Amazing storytellers. It's not that they get it right every time. There's some of them that I could jump over, but when they are on top of their game, they do something quite remarkable. You sit down to watch an animation film. And it's like basically a glorified cartoon, right? And it has cute characters, and it has a lot of color, and it, as far as you've been told, it's a story for kids. So you sit down thinking that this will be a harmless and uneventful endeavor. You just be there chewing on popcorn while your kids hopefully laugh and are entertained for the next hour and a half or so. And then suddenly you find yourself missing your grandparents or, you know, sobbing with nostalgia or reflecting on the meaning of life and what is a soul and what have we done to the planet and why are we destroying and living in outer space suddenly. It's just suddenly it's there. It hits you. That's what good storytelling does. You go into it thinking, oh, little robot collects trash, and suddenly you're reflecting on climate crisis. (laughs) You know, you go into it, oh, this little Mexican kid plays guitar, and suddenly you're sobbing, oh, remember my grandma. It's there. It moves you. And because Pixar is an animation film studio, they tend to take you off your guard. Even when you know that that is kind of what they do. And that's why I concluded that the Book of Ruth is like a Pixar movie for the ancient world. Perhaps even for us today. It helps that the book reads almost like a play in four acts. It's a very theatrical narrative book. It would be very easy to adapt it into a, a play or whatever. It goes, it flows. So I want to welcome you into this, uh, into this story. And I want to welcome you into the first act of this story, which is Ruth chapter 1. We're going to read one chapter per Sunday, and they're not, they're not long, and they're very... So I, I want to start, start off into this story with you. Ruth chapter 1. And this is how the story goes. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Melon and Kideon. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left with her two sons, without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was steered because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Naomi. Don't call me Naomi, she told him. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. I know this is not a, it's not a cheerful start, right? Yeah, it's not a cheerful start. There's famine, there's death, but, you know, hey, a lot of Pixar movies starts in a surprisingly depressing situations. Right? The first time I tried to see Ratatouille with my oldest son, uh, we didn't manage because we couldn't get past the, past the scene in the very beginning where Remy, this rat, gets separated from his father, and he just couldn't, he was like, no, I can't see this. It was too much. And don't get me started on the beginning of Up. Like it's, yeah. But here's the thing, because those are animation movies for kids, skeptic grown-ups like me, we don't make a big fuss over this tragedy, because we know everything will be alright in the end or else it wouldn't be rated for kids, right? And sometimes that's even the argument that we use with our kids. We go like, oh, it's okay. It's just a cartoon. It's going to end well. That, I often argue, is one of our big problems when reading Ruth. The problem with the book of Ruth is that it has a happy ending. It has a happy ending, and many of us know that going in already, and that is a problem. One of the main hindrances to a good reading of Ruth, a good listening to the Book of Ruth, is when we give it the Disney fairy tale treatment. But I don't want to go ahead myself. Most most likely, not all of us here know the full story of Ruth. So here's the spoiler-filled Ruth in a nutshell. We read chapter one. Ruth and Naomi are back in Israel after a time of famine in which they fled, they came back, and they're destitute. They have no husband, and in the ancient Near East, this means they have no social security. Any entitlement to rights, to land, to work, to anything goes through a man. This is why widows... In the the Old Testament and in the scriptures are used as a paradigm the example of what the the stereotype of what it means to be destitute They have no rights. They have no network and they come back and uh, Basically have to beg for food, right and what Ruth does then is that Ruth makes use of a tradition Uh, In ancient Israel, in which when the the fields were harvested, you were not allowed to harvest them to their full extent, but you should always leave some for the poor, for the destitute, for the widow. So whatever fell, you shouldn't get it back up. And the corners of the field shouldn't be uh, picked up so that the poor, the destitute, the widow could do what is called gleaning, which is to collect this rest. So Ruth goes in the place of Naomi and does this. And Ruth goes and she gleans the fields and she finds herself gleaning the fields of a man named Boaz. And it turns out that this guy Boaz is a relative of Naomi's late husband Elimelech. Now because of the specific rules of that country, that means that this man had a right, that's how it's put him, he actually has a duty, but you know, he has a right to redeem this widow. This has to do with a tradition called Leveret marriage. All this gets very confusing, but you'll get there. Which means that if a man died leaving no heir, no heirs, his brother, or the closest relative, was expected to marry the widow, have a child with the widow, and that child would carry on the line of the deceased man. Why? Because women can't own land. So the heir, would make sure that this land stayed in the family and that the widow would be cared for and this is called a leveret marriage and it goes through grades of how close you are to the deceased widow turns out boaz is in a family line he can redeem uh can redeem naomi so ruth and naomi come up with this little plot of how she's going to continue gleaning in this field uh, Mo, uh boaz takes notice of ruth uh, and takes notice of how Ruth has been taking care of of Naomi. There are hints that Ruth was a very beautiful woman as well. He gets her attention, they talk to each other, he gives her grain, she comes back, she plots this whole thing that you will see in chapter 3. There's this scene in which basically Ruth comes and confronts Boaz with this right and demand that Naomi has. And Boaz says, Great, I will redeem your family. I just have to get through this other relative that is a bit closer. He does this thing on the public square in which he confronts this other guy. The other guy wants the land but doesn't want the Moabite woman. So he doesn't marry her. So Boaz marries her. Then Ruth has a child, Obed, and the book ends with, fat little Obed, on the arms of Granny Naomi, who has now been redeemed and is all happy, and the people of the town are looking and saying, see what God did for you. A child, a son, was born to Naomi. It was to Ruth, right? But what that means is the line is safe. She is now secure. Look what the Lord has done. Boaz is married to Ruth, and they become ancestors to King David. That's the story. So that's a happy ending, right? That's a feel-good story if there ever was one. Fights, they get, she's noticed, there's some romance, there's getting married, and then there's a child in the end, there's a wedding, big celebration, everybody is served, fat, and happy. Except not really, right? Unless we jump over the story. That's why I argue that Ruth's happy ending can pose a problem for us. Because we are a culture obsessed with results. We are a culture obsessed with success. We are a culture obsessed with image. We like feel-good stories that shift our focus away from our own problems. We scroll Instagram trying to find nice stories that will distract. But the gold, (laughs) so we rush to the end, right? We rush to the end. We rush to the picture of smiling Grandma Naomi with fat little Obed. And all the hashtags we like, you know? It's like victorious. Hashtag God is good, hashtag faithful. Hashtag praise the Lord, and little emojis with the hands raised up. But the gold is in the storytelling. The real substance is in the story. And that's what I think Pixar gets right when they get it right. And that's what the author of Ruth gets right. The author invites us into a world of meanings and a world of deep reflections. The author invites us into a landscape of metaphors and of profound insights into the human reality and into how the divine how God plays unexpected notes of redemption in the midst of this flowing story. God doesn't arrive with lightning in the end and suddenly everything gets solved. It's in the telling, it's in the story, it's in the flow and the turns of the river as it goes through the specific geography of time and place. If we come to the story with honest curiosity, intent listening, and some reference to help us along the way, we might just find that there's way more going on there than that happy ending. And the invitation into this intricate tapestry of meaning, it's here in the beginning, in the the tragedy, uh, in the setting up of the disaster. It is where the image of Naomi has less cheerful and less victorious hashtags, right? It's hashtag poor and destitute. Hashtag life sucks. Hashtag call me bitter. Call me bitter. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi, deep in her sorrow in her struggle, she offers us a window, and the narrator offers us a window, into the genius of this storytelling. Don't call me Naomi, and Naomi means pleasant. That's where we get lost in translation, right? Because there's so many hints here. Naomi means pleasant, calls me, call me Mara, which means bitter. Just that opens a whole universe of meaning, because what shall we call the other characters in this story? Because again, that's where we get lost in translation, because their names have meanings. Bethlehem, where this family emigrates from, and then back to is house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. And these people are from the tribe of Ephrathah, fruitful. They leave the house of bread from the fruitful land that is, start, that is struggling. And Elimelech, my God is king, leaves the land where God is king and things go. And then you have Naomi called pleasant and turning into Mara who's called bitter. And then their two kids have very weird names which I do not recommend you give your kids. Because malon means sickly, sick. And kilion means destruction. Don't call your kids that, okay? Uh, Orpah means back of neck, the one who turns away. And ruth means friend, where it can also mean to saturate, to saturate. There's so much going on in this story, isn't there? A story of people who have their names and their lives thickly embedded with their, with their tragedies, but also with the whispers of hope, redemption, struggle, and life. Because despite Naomi's words, chapter one, and not chapter four, chapter one, With all the death, the destruction, the immigration, the refugee status, and not chapter 4 with the beautiful fat little baby, chapter 1 is where the most profound change happens. This is when God is acting, if we're trying to make sense of God's action in this story that hardly names God. But God, the unseen yet deeply present character in the book of Ruth, is seen here. Not through some extraordinary miracle, not through some flash of light, but being present in the choice of a Moabite. A Moabite. That's not a name. The others were names. It's not a personal name. It's the name of a place. And once Ruth arrives in Israel, it's an adjective. She's no longer Ruth. Now she is Ruth the Moabite throughout the narrative. Before arriving in Israel, she's Ruth. Now she's Ruth the Moabite, a describer full with dread and with meaning in the land of Israel. Let me read from you from Deuteronomy. Chapter 23 from verse 3 to 6, where it says on the laws and the self-understanding of the people of ancient Israel, it says, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor in Aram Naharim to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live." Ruth, the Moabite, makes a choice. We're going to talk more about this, right? This, this is racial profiling. This is religious conflict. It's all these things. But this woman, Ruth, the Moabite, makes a choice, a choice to stick with this bitter old lady whom she loves. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Maybe you've heard these words being said in a wedding. This is a Moabite saying to an old Israeli widow, I'm sticking with you. In your bitterness, in your sorrow, I'm sticking with you. And Ruth, Ruth has her own full set of problems, right? Her beautiful words to Naomi reveal that there is little else on their horizon together than death. But nothing else than the death we're walking into separate us. She is herself a childless widow, and for all she knows, barren, because she's been, she had been married for 10 years before this happened. We know the end, so we know she's not, but... And she's exposing herself to a whole lot of risk in going with Naomi. And she's a Moabite. But she goes. And that decision to stick with each other and to support each other in the suffering. And it is to some extent also Naomi's decision, right? She accepts. She yields. Which sometimes is a hard thing to do, right? To accept to be loved and to be taken care of in our sorrow and in our grief. That decision to stick with each other and support each other in suffering, to not take the easier route of distancing herself and and each trying to sort of heal their wounds and go through their suffering alone, that decision changes everything for both of them. But again, we need to be careful. We need to be wary of making Ruth's choice into some magical formula that will then make everything all right. This is happening in chapter one. Ruth's labor is a labor of love. It's not a transaction. She doesn't know that everything will be all right. And in the world in which they live, they know the chances are it won't. But to me, it seems that if we consider other possible outcomes, I think it seems to me that even if Boaz hadn't come into the story, I think Naomi's life would have been better off because of, because of Ruth. Her kindness to Naomi is recognized as pleasing to God before she as the text says in the end, restores Naomi's fortune, so to speak. God is working in Naomi's life through Ruth. And Naomi can't see or understand what God is doing. And at this point in the story, Naomi is calling herself bitter, but she can feel the embrace and the strong presence of Ruth with her. Ruth's presence in the story, introduced so poetically here, It is the presence of hesed. Hesed is a key word in this story, and it is sometimes translated as loving kindness. Maybe you've heard this translation before. It's a descriptive. Hesed. And it is a word overwhelmingly used as a descriptive for God in the Hebrew scriptures. Overwhelmingly describing God. Here it's describing Ruth. Here it is seen in the embodied presence of Ruth, the widow Moabite. And for me, even though friend is a great translation for Ruth, I mean, I would love a friend like that, right? But I think the best translation for her name is actually the weird one, to saturate. Because she saturates the story with hesed, with loving kindness. Which is a love that is present in the itty-gritty reality of life. And that is why I argue, and I'm coming towards the end here, that Ruth, for us who approach this story as Christians is a Christ figure. Ruth is a Christ figure. You're gonna find a lot of preachings on the book of Ruth that speak of Boaz as a Christ figure. And that's because of his role as what is called a guardian redeemer, which is this role that I explained before in the law of somebody in the family that could come in and redeem a widow by marrying her and then redeem her back into her status and full ownership of everything that she would have a right to. So just abounding references to Boaz as a Christ-like figure, he redeems Ruth and Naomi like Christ redeems us. That's fine as far as it goes, but I think the big Christ figure here is Ruth. What Boaz does is is a sort of an extra kindness within the system when he's pushed to it, actually. Then he does the right thing. But Ruth's loving kindness, it flips the system upside down. It is an incarnation choice. It is a choice to be present with Naomi in her suffering, to walk with her in her suffering, and to love her in the middle of the challenges of life. Her choice is a choice to put herself in a place of being an agent, and embodiment of grace into Naomi's life. The means through which Naomi's life can be saturated with God's own hesed. Loving kindness. And I don't think we should condemn or look down on Orpah's choice. It was perfectly logical choice. It was she had come to me for advice, I would have said, yeah, you know, go back. Why would you go to Israel? That's a bad idea. It's a perfectly logical choice. There's nothing extraordinary about it, neither for evil or for good. It is Ruth's choice that is unusual and extraordinary because it is a choice made out of love and compassion. It is a choice with the taste and the texture of grace in actual life. Grace that is present and with Naomi as she goes through her mourning. And there is no less presence in her pain than it is in her joy. And it can only be present in her joy because of the choice to be present in pain and suffering. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. This is chapter one. Right? This is love based on hope and on grace, not on results. No guarantees, no promise of success in the end of the, of the line. No guarantees of prosperity. This is love based on hope and grace. And I look at Ruth <laughs> and I'm challenged. And if I came into it thinking, if I had come into it, at this point I guess I know Ruth well enough, but if you come into it thinking you're going to get the fairy tale, if you dare listen to the story, suddenly it got you by your heart and by your guts. And I'm challenged. Because we don't get very far in our life of faith by just sticking to what is morally acceptable. We need to step into what is compassionately outrageous. That's what Ruth does. What's compassionately courageous. I don't think we understand much Christ likeness by staying out of trouble. Warpa's choice was the choice of staying out of trouble. We need to step into trouble. into the trouble of each other's lives. That is the compassionately courageous and outrageous thing that Ruth the Moabite does. We can choose to not rush our hearts and our theology and our efforts to the end of the story but rather dare to listen to the names, to the tragedies, to the joys in the telling where we actually find ourselves. Because this is where we need hesed, isn't it? When we walk from these doors and we deal with our depression, or with the insecurity of our jobs, or with the war raging in Palestine and in Ukraine and so many other places that we forgot because our news just moved too fast. It's a wonderful story. because it tells us of a God presence in ordinary life. That's why I love Ruth. She teaches me about Christ and I pray she will teach me about myself and to hear, to hear the stories. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you with your names and your stories and your struggles and your hopes that he may bring you of his peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve each other, serve the world, serve the Lord joyfully. Amen. Do you want to stay connected with us? Check out our website at oslointernational.church to discover more about our community, access additional resources, and join us in our faith journey. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.